I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast or welcome to those who may be new listening. My name is Tally Rye and firstly, I just want to say... We did it. We made it to 2021. We're still here and I'm so happy to have you here. So this week's episode, we're kicking off January by tackling subjects that you may be thinking about or contemplating as we enter, you know, new year, new you territory as with the past year that we've had, perhaps some of us are looking to make changes for our health and mental well-being and you found this podcast along the way, you've heard about intuitive eating and you're curious. So I thought I would get the OG guest for this podcast, Laura Thomas, back on the podcast to kick us off for January. Now, you may know Laura, she is a registered nutritionist. She's the author of Just Eat It, a best-selling book about intuitive eating, and she is releasing a workbook to accompany that book called How to Just Eat It. Laura is a friend of mine, and it was honestly a pleasure to get to sit and chat with her all about intuitive eating, and we discussed how it's important that when we are looking to make positive changes to our relationship with food, that we have an emotional toolkit. We're talking about how to avoid the pitfalls of diet culture this January. And I really hope you find this a helpful conversation if you're just thinking, where on earth do I even begin with intuitive eating? Like, what is it? How do I start? So we hopefully will cover that for you today. So if you are new here, just something to know about us. We like to call ourselves the Train Happy Troopers. I like to spell it like T-R-O-U-P-E-R-S. Think of it like a dance troupe, but at the same time, we're fighting against diet culture. So it has that double meaning. And every week I like to celebrate a Train Happy Troopers, Train Happy moment. So if we could just cue the music. We are back with a train happy moment and this week's train happy moment comes from listener Beth and Beth says, I want to share with you my constant string of train happy moments now that I'm in a much better place with food and exercise. I used to have a very disordered relationship with food and exercise and became very rigid in my approach to training. Glutes on a Wednesday, no excuses. In January 2018, was when I realised my behaviours towards food were disordered and I started to undo all of it. The realisation of my disordered behaviours around exercise came along shortly after. After almost two years of working everything out in my head, I'm finally in a place where I exercise for my happiness and well-being first, fitness second. I still train in the gym because it is me time and I genuinely enjoy training, But my sessions are so much more diverse now and serve the purpose of supporting my physical and mental health. 
I also discovered my love for running and going for 10k runs with my dad where we don't care about what time we get, we just enjoy the run and chatting away. I also love to do yoga when I'm able to, I love going out walking in nature and horse riding. I'm so pleased to be in a place where my exercise choices are intuitive and I ask myself what would feel good today. Sometimes that is going to do nothing and I don't feel guilty about it and trust myself completely when listening to my body. My most recent train happy moments have been going out for runs intentionally without wearing my watch so I wasn't aware of the time or how far I had run. I just ran until I felt I had done enough and really enjoyed it. What's more is I can feel my fitness improving through checking in with myself rather than my metrics I'm recording and tracking. I hope I can continue to build my knowledge and confidence to tackle weight stigma in healthcare. I should add, Beth did tell me she was a doctor at the beginning of this email (laughs) and your podcast is certainly allowing me to question how I want to approach patients that is inclusive and with a non-diet approach once I qualify. That is so awesome. Thank you, Beth, for sending that in. And for such a lovely train happy moment, I hope that inspires you to keep sticking to this journey, to keep trusting yourselves as we head into 2021. And I hope that today's episode is going to help you with that. If you want to send in your train happy moment or send in a question for the podcast, then do email into trainhappypodcast at gmail.com. And that's also written in the show notes so you can find that there. So without further ado, let's hear from this week's guest, Laura Thomas. Welcome back, Laura, to the podcast. I hope you know you are the first person to come on the Train Happy podcast twice. You are our first ever guest um, when we started really? this podcast. Yeah, you were the first ever episode. And now you're the first oh, wow. episode of 2021. Whew. So no pressure. Major. And that is since, big. Yeah. And since we've last uh, since we last got to speak, you had a big year. You birthed a human. <laughs> I did. You birthed your second book. I how did. are you doing? How are you how are you coping? <laughs> oh, and that whole pandemic thing. So how are you doing? Oh yeah, that happened. That happened. Uh yeah. You know what like it I'm not gonna lie, like it's been a year. (laughs) It has been a year. Um, but I'm, I think coming out the other side, I think I see light at the end of the tunnel. There's a vaccine. I think we're all going to be okay. I agree. I think, yeah, there seems there's, there's an optimism and a hope. And I think that's really important. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I think this the past year has just been a roller coaster, hasn't it? And I think with that, you know, even the pressure of like, oh, what did I even get done? I mean, yeah, in 2020. Yeah. Um, and you know, I suppose for you, like getting out of the year, like I said, with a baby and a book, isn't you? You did it. You. you somehow I mean, this did is it. not like this is not compare achievements. No. We're not. No, that's not what we're doing here. It just, you know, I have to kind of say like that was too much to do in a year don't do that if you're planning if you're thinking about having a book in the same year as you're gonna have a baby don't do it it's a bad idea I am exhausted <laughs> so it's, it's not good for you don't do that um but um yeah it's it's exciting at the same time there's there are things to celebrate in amongst all of the darkness and the 
shitstorm that 2020 has been. Mm. And I suppose because of having a baby, you've been um, able to have time off and time away, perhaps from being like online at work and maybe you know, in the headspace of being like frontline fighting against diet culture in a sense. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's fair. I definitely like um, have had my head more in like writing and editing the book and being a mom. Um, And I have been able to kind of take a step back from like social media and the sort of relentlessness of diet culture and especially like when lockdown hit the first time all of the like really um insidious messages around how much you have to work out and and the fear-mongering around gaining weight and all of that stuff so yeah I've definitely been able to kind of pause on all of that and which has been really good in terms of like regrouping my energy so that when it hits in 2021 I will be there I will be on the front line ready to take it down. <laughs> exactly. And I think for some people, and we'll we'll get into maybe a bit more like understanding diet culture, but for those of us who want to change the narrative around the way we view food, our bodies, movement, um, it's it can be like, you know, we're going against the grain and that takes a lot of energy. And sometimes it's important to take a step back to then be able to take step forwards again. And I think that's, you know, there's absolutely no shame and it's really important to like take time out for yourself to recuperate and, you know, have other parts of life going on before you're you're able to kind of get back in the game. It's such an important point. And it is, it's something that I say to my clients a lot um, when they, come and I talk about it in how to just eat it as well that you know when we learn about diet culture when we learn about all the ways that it harms people and that it kind of keeps us stuck and not reaching our potential that we get we can get really really angry about it which I think is um, an important emotion to tap into in terms of of helping us heal from diet culture but the result of it is sometimes that we want to go screaming about it from the rooftops we want to like you know like tell our best friend and like tell our moms and like you know just just like get really annoyed at diet culture um and like you said, it's like swimming upstream sometimes. And so, you know, when you're trying to have these conversations with people before they're ready, it can be like banging your head against the wall and you don't get anywhere. So I always tell people to work on your own stuff first, like figure this out for yourself, really plant your feet firmly on the ground, really, you know, dig into intuitive eating, understand it, apply it to yourself. And then once you've kind of sorted yourself out that's when you can go back and start introducing your friends and family to it yeah and I think you know having being at like a festive period and like maybe being around more, maybe a few more people than we have been but in general feeling the need to save people and you know the need to like um to save people like you say who may not be ready to to hear what yeah. you have to say um I think it's important to know that like you don't have to do that um and it really I think takes the pressure off and um I kind of I think means that then people can discover this stuff on their own so it is January at the time of this episode coming out 
And I, I'm expecting diet culture to be in full force. If the end of 2020 has been anything to go by, mm. I think um, the noise may be louder than ever this coming January. And so I wanted to talk to you about intuitive eating. We did mention it. But for those who haven't heard you before or may not be familiar with your work, um, you are a registered nutritionist. Um, you are the author of Just Eat It. And you have come up with your second book, How to Just Eat It, which my understanding is it's a workbook to accompany Just Eat It. Um, yeah. And so it, you are discussing intuitive eating in depth. So for those listening, can you explain a bit about how you choose to approach nutrition and um, intuitive eating? Yeah, so I support clients to move away from diets, prescriptive, rule-based, rigid ways of eating. So if we take a step back for a second, just to kind of set the scene, we live in diet culture. We live in a culture that praises thinness and values thinness over almost anything else. And as, as a result, we have diets shoved down our throats from like when we're small children. We internalize the idea that gaining weight and having a bigger body is bad and, and needs to be avoided at all costs. So we probably, you know, for most of us from a fairly young age, embark on diets. And I use the word diets, but diets is kind of a dirty word now. Um, and so, you know, it could be clean eating, it could be healthy living, it could be all of these euphemisms that we've sort of used to, to, to disguise what we actually mean, which is, is a diet. So we we might start the we might start diets as as young as primary school even there is evidence that shows that 5-year-old girls restrict their diets to try and, and lose weight um but anyway so we 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 adopt these different diets or lifestyles and they all come packed with different sets of rules and then when the diet inevitably doesn't work or fails as most of them don't work we're still left with all of the rules of that diet floating around our heads. And so then when we go on another diet and then another diet and another diet after that, these rules kind of snowball in our minds to the point where we, we can't just make a simple decision about what we'd like to eat based on um, how hungry we are and what sounds appetizing and comforting in that moment. We have to kind of like do this, like, arithmetic equation in our minds to try and figure out what the hell to eat um and so there's a lot of noise there's a lot of kind of well if I you know if I eat this baguette then I can't have potatoes for dinner or like I have to like run however many miles and I have to do this workout and I can't because that's got sugar and that's got too much fat and then and like the the rules are all contradictory and yeah so it's just this big mess um and that really just like it's a buzzkill right <laughs> like having to think about all of that stuff all of the time it really takes us away from things that are more important to us it takes us out of the moment it takes us um 
like it just it takes so much from us in terms of our mental health in terms of our um, ability to connect with people and basically intuitive eating I like to think of it as the off-ramp from all of that it's a way to unpack all of the rules and offload them and get back to our sort of our default way of eating that that most of us are born with as babies right we I I think about my baby a lot um because he's he's just started eating solids and he's having the most fun with it but he will you know when he's hungry he'll just like gobble up a bunch of food and then when when he stops he's just like "Mm, mm." and he's like I don't I don't want that anymore and he will kind of like pick and choose different things off of his tray um and you know so for most of us that that was what we were born into was intuitive eating but because of diet culture because of um you know everything we're taught about the right and the wrong way to have a body and and good and bad foods we lose connection with that and so intuitive eating is to help us get back to that place so that was a really long-winded explanation but I hope that that kind of illustrates the point the intention behind intuitive eating yeah I think it's important to kind of set the scene and explain um diet culture and how and how it does impact our relationship with food and exercise and I suppose with that in mind um for those who you know this is coming up in January a lot of us are going to think right especially going through this pandemic and maybe having a more sedentary lifestyle and potentially bodies changing um you know, right, January's here, fresh start. I want to make a change. I want to, you know, I want to be healthy this year. I want to, um, you know, and perhaps I need to change the way I eat and move. And I think a lot of that comes with good intention, but we're given bad information and we're given, you know, I think a lot of people just want to make the best decisions for themselves, but we're doing it based on um, stuff that doesn't, really work so I would love to hear your take on and you write about this in um how to just eat it your workbook about and just eat it as well extensively about you know the allure of dieting and how we get stuck in that cycle yeah and the idea that actually the evidence is kind of is not in dieting's favor at all so I would just love to hear your perspective on that diet cycle and, and the allure of diets. Yeah, so I think um, maybe it would be helpful if I explain what the diet cycle is because yes. um, I think a lot of people will recognize it when, when they hear it. So it starts off, like you say, with that um, you know well-intentioned, maybe I just want to get a bit healthier, I want to look after myself, um, and maybe in the process, I'll lose a couple of pounds, right? So like you say, because we, we tend to get really crappy information about how to take care of ourselves, we're told that in order to take care of ourselves, we have to shrink our bodies, which of course is not true as I think we'll hopefully we'll, um, get that point across. But so what we do is we start to cut out food groups. We start to count our calories or count our macros or start weighing ourselves and we get into what's known as the diet mentality 
So the diet mentality is, is kind of what I was explaining before. All of that noise that's in our mind, all of those rules and those restrictions and that back and forth and the bargaining and negotiating with ourselves to the point where we can't just make a simple choice about what we'd like to eat without having to do this massive calculation first. So we, we've decided to go on, a, on some sort, sort of diet or health kick. We start internalizing all of these rules about good and bad foods, what we can and can't eat. And, and we start having all of this noise in our head, this diet mentality where we feel really preoccupied about food. And what can happen is, because in the short term, most diets will produce some kind of weight loss effect. So we might be feeling pretty good about ourselves. It might spur us on, give us a little bit of um, a, a boost in motivation. Our, our biology is hardwired to protect what's known as our genetic set point weight, or it's sometimes known as a set point range, which, you know, because our bodies aren't meant to be like this static weight, they tend to fluctuate between a range that um, is, is kind of healthy for our bodies and, and where our bodies are in what's known as homeostasis. So everything is kind of nicely balanced out and our bodies don't have to do anything to, to compensate for um, lack of energy. When we're in when we're in an energy suppressed state, um, our bodies might not be in homeostasis and they might have to so what what basically what happens is that our metabolism starts to dial down our um, like these essential functions like digestion or like reproduction, they they're not they don't have enough energy so they start to just kind of like do more with less if that makes sense um so everything kind of like slows down a little bit which is why when um people have done a lot of restrictive dieting they tend to have digestive issues that's a side issue we can we can come back to that so um Basically, our body starts to compensate for the, the, the lack of energy, and it does this by slowing everything down, but it also simultaneously will up-regulate hunger signals. And so our, our bodies start to, you know, we, we start to feel hungrier, our appetites become stronger. And so what can end up happening is that we start to, when we come into contact, let's say, with like some donuts or some pizza, we might end up sort of falling off the bandwagon, breaking our diet. And for some people, that might actually end up in, in a binge, um, which is a really extreme, you know, form of disordered eating. For other people, it might, they might sort of feel out of control and um, like they're kind of addicted to food. Um, for other people, it might be more of an emotional or a psychological response in where they start just shit talking themselves and, and feeling a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism for, you know, blowing it. Um, so then if we're kind of coming up the other side of the, the cycle, we start to gain a little bit of weight back because we are maybe, well, because our, our biology is pushing us back towards our set point weight um, and because we've maybe been eating a little bit more. And so then we end up right back at the beginning where we started off and that cycle continues around and around. Does that all make sense? Did I miss anything out there, Tally? I don't think so. I mean, I think it does, sorry. I don't think you miss anything out. And I suppose it's like each time we embark on the diet cycle, we might try a different... Um, 
you know, a different yeah. way of losing weight. So it might have, you know, it might have originally been Weight Watchers, but this time it's keto, and next time it's intermittent fasting, and the other time it could and be... And then it's vegan, and then and you've got, vegan. like, the vegan rules on one side and the keto rules on the other side, and they're, like, diametrically opposed to mm. each other. And and, and you're, you're, you're left in the middle being like, what the hell am I supposed to eat? Yeah. And it's, and it's really confusing and conflicting. And like you said that the allure of that initial weight loss or the, you know, initial quote results, um, which is what we're seeing online. I think, I think it's really important to say that there's, you're going to see a lot of like transformation pictures online and people selling you their plans and their apps. And those are usually based on maybe, you know, 10, 12 weeks, six month periods. And we're talking about, um, how we would, how our bodies uh, maybe fight against that after that period and how difficult it is to maintain that, you know, and and how we may have to embark on those disordered behaviors to maintain yeah. a, a weight loss. And so we see this, these success stories maybe of people who seemingly do maintain this weight loss and keep it off, quote, keep it off. But actually to get that and I actually loved it in your book when you said and it's really interesting how these people manage to maintain this weight loss because they've quit their jobs they've become a full-time fitness instructor and they don't sit down for 15 minutes or something like that and I just yeah and I laugh because I I laugh because I've been there (laughs) (laughs) well I wasn't thinking of you no but but it's so common there and there is there are there are studies that have kind of shown people who are you know quote successful at long term weight loss and in the scientific literature we define long term as longer than you know between two and five years right um, but there so there there's a study that that shows people who have kept some weight off for long periods of time. And they have adopt, they either adopt very disordered behaviors. So they're constantly tracking and monitoring and weighing everything, weighing themselves, weighing their food, wearing, you know, Fitbits, Mm. all of that kind of stuff. And they, like a large proportion of these people become like fitness instructors or dance instructors or like nutritionists, nutritionists. So, um, yeah, like, (laughs) but, but those studies um, there's one study that I have in mind in particular here, but they are not, you know, they are the um, exception rather than the rule, if that mm. makes sense. They're, there's a small fraction of people. So Fiona Willer, who is a, um, a weight science researcher, she calls them the unicorns, right? Because they're, they're so hard to find, these people that can maintain long-term weight loss. And and I just want to say, going back to the um, the before and after pictures and what other people are doing with their bodies, like just to just to keep in mind that their body, their business, right? Whatever they want to do with them, you know, that's not for us to judge. But at the same time, it's also worth keeping in mind that what they do with their bodies, their exercise, their movement, their what they eat that has absolutely no bearing or influence or should have no bearing or any influence over what you do with your body, right? Mm. What they eat gives you absolutely no information about what you, what, what's good for your body. How much they move gives, them, gives, gives you no information about what's good for your body. 
that has to be an internal job rather than looking for looking to other people to tell you what you should do. And I think the problem is a lot of us don't trust ourselves and don't trust the the internal aspects no. because we have been taught distrust and we have questioned ourselves so much with the different dieting attempts with the you know with the magazines and the people we follow on Instagram and sure. you know people making us feel very conflicted about what what's the best thing for our bodies yeah. um, because a lot of people will proclaim to be the expert of your body and say you should be doing this you should be eating this you should be doing xyz but what's so beautiful about intuitive eating is that it's about empowering you to become the your the expert yeah. of your own body and so that yeah. you have the tools and knowledge and awareness to make the best decisions for yourself. Yeah, yeah. If anybody calls themselves a nutrition expert, that is, to me, a sign that you should run a mile because if they are put, if they're placing their expertise over and above your experience of, of living in your body and then you know, they're going to, they're going to kind of, what, what we talk about in our clinic is, is people who want to work on you instead Mm. of work with you. Okay. So if, you know, if you were a client coming to see us at London Center for Intuitive Eating, our job is not to tell you what to do. Our job is to work alongside you to help you figure out what feels good in your body rather than to give you more prescriptive rules or a meal plan or dictate what you ought to be doing. Absolutely. So let's get into um, intuitive eating and how to just eat it. And with that in mind, I where do we start with this? If we're like, okay, <laughs> intuitive eating, I'm on board. Yeah. Where do we start with this? And what do you think through your, you know, your um, clinical experience and with all the information you have is the best place to, to begin this yeah. journey? So I think just to, again, for a little bit of context, intuitive eating as a framework is made up of 10 principles. And we did a podcast episode, um, the, the first podcast episode that we did, we went through them one by one. So it starts with rejecting the diet mentality, and then we learn about hunger signals, and then it kind of um, evolves from there until we get to gentle um, nutrition and intuitive movement. So I do, you know, in How to Just Eat It and, and Just Eat It, I set out the principles in, a, in the way that makes most sense to me. However, when I'm working with somebody one-on-one in clinic, before we even start to scratch the surface of the principles of intuitive eating, we tend to look at what skills and tools and coping mechanisms that they have available to them in their sort of toolkit. So that can be anything from, you know, looking at their self-care practices to are they in therapy? Um, do they practice self-compassion or mindfulness or meditation or anything like that? Um, and I think that this is a really important place to begin because for so many people, dieting and disordered eating are in and of themselves a way of dealing with things that are difficult, right? So I've got some difficult stuff going on in my life. I can't look at it. I'm just going to blame my body for my problems because that's what diet culture teaches us to do. 
and I'm going to focus on how I can, you know, perfect my diet or perfect my workout routine. And so in that sense, dieting and disordered eating are coping mechanisms. And if we are going to move away from disordered eating towards intuitive eating, then we need to have different coping skills in place. We need to to have things that we can fall back on and replace the disordered eating with in order to be able to really fully engage with intuitive eating. So in How to Just Eat It, we, the, the whole first chapter is about developing that toolkit. And so it's looking at what we've already got and what's already available to us and how we can build on that. So we have the emotional and psychological tools available to us, not just for our food stuff and our exercise stuff and our body stuff, but for like general life stuff. <laughs> because, you know, we, we need, you know, I think the skills that we learn around intuitive eating are really just a microcosm of what's going on in our lives because it's not really ever like the difficulties we have around food in our body are never really about our food or our bodies. They're about other things. So yeah, these, we learn these skills, but they can apply to other areas of our lives. And I really love that emphasis because this is something I try to, we talk about quite a lot on the Train Happy podcast when we talk to therapists and you know um talk about that emotional aspect and how you know dieting has been the coping mechanism it's been the sole coping mechanism and we might not even truly understand that and I'm speaking from personal experience here of like turning to changing my food and my body because I didn't have the I just didn't have the awareness or understanding of how to understand what my emotions were, how I physically felt them. And so when I was looking at the workbook and just the the different kind of tasks and um, elements you bring in, in terms of like how to begin connecting with yourself, how to begin understanding your body's cues, I just think that's such a fantastic foundation to A, get the the food stuff and really start to do that, yeah. but B, it's so transferable. And that's what I love about this work is that you're like, okay, well, I, th- I thought it was just about my relationship with food, but it is about so much yeah. more than that. Yeah, I've definitely had clients, you know, um, they, they, come, they come to me and we talk about their relationship with food and they sound so critical of themselves and they're so ju- self-judgmental. And, and I might just reflect that back to them and say, have you noticed how harshly you, you speak to yourselves? And they, they hadn't, like they maybe knew, but they like had never had anybody actually say that out loud to them before. And so we might spend a little bit of time talking about self-compassion, for example. And I remember one client in particular coming in to me and being like, remember we talked about self-compassion and like how poorly I speak to myself um she's like I noticed that I do that in relation to work in relation to my relationships in relation to my family and everything and it was just such a game changer for her even though you know we were over here talking about food but it has this trickle effect to the rest of her life Mm, and and I think that's just so important to get that so you mentioned in your book about um 
and I, I believe these are elements of accept, acceptance and commitment therapy. So mm-hmm. I would love maybe to hear more about it, but you mentioned things such as grounding, diffusion, expansion, and defining what your values are as a person, yes. which you're like, what does this have to do with my relationship with food? <laughs> so like, much. What, is, what does this have to do with whether I like carbs or not? I don't get it. But I think this is like we're saying, this is really important stuff. So can you explain acceptance and commitment therapy? Because we haven't discussed this before on Train Happy Podcast. Huh. And well, how these these different elements integrate in that. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm not an acceptance and commitment a commitment therapy therapist. I'm not mm. a therapist. I'm a nutritionist. But acceptance and commitment therapy is this really lovely model that in our practice we borrow a lot of tools from and it's you know in a nutshell and I'm probably not going to do this a lot of justice but for a lot of people we our thinking style is very rigid and inflexible and we like dichotomize things we're very black and white thinkers the sort of gist of acceptance and commitment therapy is more about, so the acceptance part speaks to leaning into things that are maybe difficult or uncomfortable rather than try and run away from them. So that's the, you know, diet cult, dieting and, 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 um, diets and overexercise are a distraction from the stuff that we don't want to look at. So what would happen if we were to kind of just gently and curiously lean into that a little bit more and um, would that actually maybe give us some some space or some freedom rather than what we think might happen, which is that it's going to going to um, hurt us in some way. And it, it might not it, like I said, it might be uncomfortable to look at that stuff, but actually counterintuitively leaning into it can help us release it. Am I are you following me so yes, far? Yes, I absolutely am. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. And um I guess yeah, I wasn't <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna be talking about this. So um if I'm yeah, just let me uh, kind of gather my thoughts a little bit. But so yeah, part part of acceptance or a big part of acceptance and commitment therapy is this the acceptance part of um accepting our reality and I've actually done a podcast episode with Fiona Sutherland that accompanies the toolkit chapter of my book which we talk a lot more about this in a lot more detail and she's you know um, really articulate about speaking to these topics but what happens as a result of kind of leaning into our experiences a little bit more is that we become less rigid in our thinking we become less stuck and we can be a bit more flexible in our approach to things. So that could be flexibility around food, right? So, um, oh, I don't have anything to eat in the fridge. I'm going to call a pizza and not have that be this like massive ordeal. Um, but it could also be, you know, in relation to, um, you know, thinking again about how it extrapolates to other areas of our lives. Perhaps it's like, well, you know, I had a shitty encounter with this person, but instead of um, taking it out on them or taking it out on myself or taking it out on somebody else around me, I'm going to practice a little bit of self-compassion. So again, it's kind of that flexible thinking instead of that reactive way of thinking. 
that makes sense. So it's a huge, it's a huge model. I'm not doing it much justice at all, but there are some really beautiful tools from acceptance and commitment therapy because it's a very practical um, therapy. And I've tried to include them in the book because I know that they're really helpful for a lot of my clients. Can we talk about, and you have to, you have to, I think this might be under diffusion, but mm-hmm. can we talk about the idea of, um, and I'm going to speak about this broadly, so yeah, please correct me, but I, my understanding was that say you had a negative thought about your body, you know, my legs aren't good enough, you know, my, le- yeah. my legs are too big. That we go through the process of being like, oh, why, why do I think that? And, oh, that's cute. Like, instead of judging yourself for thinking that as yes. such, you get curious about why you're thinking that. Yes. And we, and you start to um, kind of take the power away from that statement by, through different techniques. And I think one of them was like recording yourself saying it over and over again and listening to it back. Is that right? Yeah, Another so- one was singing it, which I was like, <laughs> I'm on board for as a, I love singing. So I'd love to maybe, like I said, I'm probably not doing this justice, but um, perhaps you could explain that element. Basically, what what often happens is that when we say something critical, self-critical about ourselves, we take it at face value uh, as being true, as being a serious um, statement, um, as this unchangeable truth, right? So like, like you're saying, my legs aren't good enough. And what can happen is that that, that can sort of like escalate in our minds. And we, we've, we're so bought into this idea that it kind of takes us for a ride, right? So like, my legs aren't good enough. Um, I'm not good enough. I'm unworthy. And so on and so forth. And it, you can see how it just kind of escalates really mm-hmm. quickly, right? And this is all subconscious. We're not really aware of, of this, this going on. But if we can, so if when we're hooked into a thought like that, we are fused to it. We, so you can imagine like two plates of metal that are like stuck together. They're fused, right? And that is how we are with our thoughts. So there's no separation between us and our thoughts. We are our thoughts and we, we think that they're, abs, you know, the absolute truth. But mm-hmm. they're not. They're just ideas of, and strings of words floating around in our minds. Um, And so what we can do is we can begin to put a little bit of distance between ourselves and these ideas to remind ourselves that that they are, in fact, not gospel, right? That they're they're not something that we have to live by. They're not, um, you know, commitments or commands. They're just something that our mind came up Mm. with, right? Um, And so there are a couple of different techniques that we can used to diffuse ourselves from those thoughts so if you again remember the two metal plates like we're putting a little bit of distance between them um so the first is to sing the thought to a tune so like happy birthday is a pretty common one that clients do and I get I get my clients to say this literally in front of me in session and they're mortified (laughs) but it just helps to see how um how ludicrous some of these these ideas are so like we're like um my legs are too big 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 and you're like 
what? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Like when you sing it to um, a tune. Or another really effective technique is if you say it in the voice of like a character. So like in the book, I, I talk about saying it through the voice of Jonathan Van Ness because he has such a like distinctive <laughs> like a voice. yes honey <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and like Jonathan he, Van Ness from Queer Eye if people don't know who we're talking about but he's an icon and well they're an icon as far as I'm concerned and yeah so if you can if you can channel you know a character or a celebrity or somebody like again it helps gives you a little bit of space between you and that thought so that you don't have to take it quite so seriously yes and yeah and I I mean we were talking prior to recording today about just you know whether it's like other people's opinions or you know comments we we you know we make it online as people who have um a platform on social media yeah. that just take the power away by just saying it in a funny voice and I was like that's a great idea and I I think it's so it's it kind of just makes you realize that oh this is just I don't know like I think it kind of just makes it like this is it takes a lot of the power out of it, it does it takes the power and the weight out of it and it kind of makes you realize that it is just words yeah and so if I ever get like a trolling comment or like a bad review on my book or something like that my husband makes me say it out loud in like a really just a ludicrous voice and it does it totally helps see that like you know you don't have to believe the mm. contents of that thought it's, mm. it doesn't mean that it's true just because you're having that thought yes Yes. And I, I really love, and the, you know, the concept of like, you are not your thoughts. I think it's yes. really, and that, that, that it's a thought, it's not you. I just think it's really powerful and a really good reminder. So we start with that and then we get into the idea of rejecting the diet mentality, which is the first principle of intuitive eating. Yeah. Um, especially in January when mm. the noise is very loud Mm-hmm. and we're going to be swimming against the tide mm-hmm. how do we start that I mean there there are lots of entry points and and different activities in the book I think will speak to different people at different times um so I recommend like kind of dabbling through through a few different activities but I think one way that can one activity that can be quite powerful is um so in the in the book I have two outlines of brains basically and the activity is to in the first brain write out all of the things that your head is filled with in relation to food exercise body image any of that kind of thing so that you can just visualize how much of your headspace is taken up with these thoughts, these ideas, and um, a, a lot of them will be disordered eating behaviors and habits and, and things like that. So it could be, you know, writing down um, food rules, for example, can't eat after this time or um, can't eat 
two servings of carbs in the same meal or some something like that. So just putting all of that stuff down on the first one. And then in the second outline, writing out all of the things that you want your head to be filled with. So whether that is, you know, um, career goals, um, you know, goals around your hobbies or just not even goals necessarily, but things that you would like to do more of. Um, so it might read be spending, more. Yeah. Read more, spending time with your family, like being more present and, and connected with the people around you, like all kinds of things. Um, it can be big things and it can be small things, but just to kind of, you know, highlight what you want to, to fill your headspace with. And this, this kind of, this activity came from the idea that, you know, I'd be, I'd ask clients, you know, how much, what percentage of your headspace is dedicated to thinking about food and exercise and good and bad foods and healthy versus unhealthy. And they would say, I think like 80, 90% of their headspace is taken over by thinking about this stuff. Um, and so if we can, I think it's first, important to kind of shine a light on that because a lot of us aren't even necessarily aware of how all consuming this stuff is and then thinking about okay well if I could make some space if I in in my mind how would I like to wh- where would I like to put that extra energy and thinking of the idea of that brain full of of those diet mentality thoughts I think that's why a lot of us think that it is our identity and you know once again speaking from personal experience of being you know deep in diet culture and therefore you know I'm not sure maybe I wouldn't have become a personal trainer maybe I wouldn't even be doing this had it not been for my brain thinking that like this was that was my passion that was my hobby that was my everything was this idea that I could change my body that you know, the gym was everything and, and healthy, quote, healthy eating and quote, clean recipes at the time were everything that it becomes so much part of us. And I wonder for some people, if they find it hard to almost envision them, their brain with like more space. Absolutely. And you've hit on something really, really important there. And which goes back to the toolkit and clarifying your values yes so our values are our sort of internal gps that kind of guide us towards things that are important now when i say guide us towards things that are important what i don't necessarily mean like physical things or achievements or accomplishments because diet culture teaches us like to go after um you know, weight targets and like macro targets and all of these things that you kind of like just check off of a a list. Values are not things that you check off of a list. They're not things that you achieve and then you let go of. So an example of a value might be kindness, right? You're not kind once and then go back to being an asshole for the rest of your life. (laughs) It's, it's It's a direction that you continue to move in. And so even if you like slip up and, and you do like, yell at your boyfriend then you know you your value is kindness so you apologize and you say I'm really sorry I did that that was a dick move and you know I'm gonna continue to be kinder in the future so yeah if we can if we can get really 
clear about what our four or five core values are because we all value a lot of different things right we might value compassion we might value um fun we might value joy you know they're like in the book I have a list of like 50 or something different values so it's not to say that we don't value those other things but if we can get really really clear on our core four or five values then they they can give us so much information about the directions that we want to move in even if we don't you know know specifically what the um you know the job or the like what what our five-year plan is we know how we want to feel and we we know how we want to show up in the world and how we want to show up for people in our lives and I think when you say to people like do you want to feel at war with your body yeah is that a value for 10 20 30 years like do you want yeah. to be in this you know perhaps there's a lot of self-criticism going on like do does that yeah align with your values as a yeah. person and if you got that time back like what would you would you like to do that like you know how can you how would you like to make an impact on you know your family friends community um I always say that you know um without kind of clearing my head of diet culture you know this podcast wouldn't exist my book would not exist my work would not exist in the same way to the to the depth that it goes because I just didn't have the headspace for it. Yeah. Um, and I didn't necessarily know that at the time, but you just it's like you can discover it along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think by going through this process, you can learn a lot about yourself. And another activity in the book, and this is a, a bit morbid, but I think it's really important to reflect on. And again, it's a something that we, we use in acceptance and commitment therapy, is writing your own epitaph. So mm. if you imagine you were you okay you're dead now and you're a ghost and you are hovering down looking at your own funeral and you can overhear the conversations that people are having and you're listening into how you're being remembered by your friends and family um you know do you what are they saying about you are they talking about how you were like you know the biggest loser one week in slimming club yeah (laughs) or are they talking about those core values that you embodied you know Mm -hmm. kindness patience um friendship you know all all of those things that are actually at the end of the day what matter most to people yes I I saw that that task and I think you know because I think when we're talking about body image stuff especially a lot of us will say like well do you want to be remembered as as you know like people won't say when you're on your deathbed oh she had a thigh gap you know they'll say you know I hope they'll say like what a kind caring person um I loved being with them and I think I always think about the idea of like people really remember you and remember you in the way you make them feel exactly And that's really important. And so investing more time in, I think, being able to maybe make yourself feel good and make other people feel good is is worth it more than rather than people thinking you look good. Yes, absolutely. Um, But you're right, like that, 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 that is a huge shift in our identity. And 
it's important to grieve Mm. that if that's if that is something that you are going through and to and that's I think where the self-compassion comes in because again you know when you when you start learning about diet culture and then you're like oh well this is actually a really this is rooted in sexism and patriarchy and white supremacy and ableism and fat phobia and you're just like whoa how did I not see all the shit that was right there like Mm. you know you you can you can really blame yourself for not having got on board with that sooner for you know you're like well feminism maybe that's a, a value that I have oh but I missed all of this stuff that was right yes. here um and and so yeah holding a lot of self-compassion um as you you know come come to to terms with what what is there definitely and you know I had a conversation recently with my um boyfriend about you know we were just talking about he was like you know you have changed so much since I first met you he met me like in the depths of diet culture and yeah and in some ways I was like I haven't changed but I was like absolutely I have completely changed as a person like you know my values have changed a lot yeah. you know what I'm passionate about and what's important to me have changed actually shifted a lot yeah um and it was kind of like interesting to reflect and notice on that and I think in that instance I think you know I'm fortunate that I'm with someone who understands that that change was beneficial for me and is encouraging of the change, you know, and supportive. Um, And I think that's where, you know, sometimes through this process, there might be, a you know, where certain people don't want you to change. They don't want you to evolve and grow because they, you know, and so this is where this, this kind of process of like wanting to like let go of diet culture may mean um distancing ourselves from certain friendship friendship groups yeah. I mean if if you if you have a I think a lot of what people get involved in perhaps like weight loss groups and those sorts of environments is is that community aspect or that support yeah. aspect and when you don't yeah. have maybe the common goal of weight loss to bond over um sometimes it's like what else what else was there and yeah. so I think um yeah, it's, I don't want to put people off at all, but I want well, to say that like these things are, this this might be part of a very long-term process. Well, and I think that there are a couple of points to take out of that. So the first thing that I wanted to say is that I really value your openness and your willingness to learn and to change your approach and your message that you put out on social media in response to um, having learned new information. And I know like this has been something you've been doing for a good few years now, but I, I remember you coming to me and being like, what's this? Can, can I maybe ask Laura, a couple questions? We've spoken, <laughs> we've spoken previously on this podcast, how you are the, um, you are the common uh, denominator in lots of fellow you know whether it's we've had Dr Joshua on we've had myself then very people being like and I spoke to Laura Thomas and xyz happened so you are a common denominator in a lot of people like you planted a fair few seeds in your time uh well that that's good to know that I'm I'm sort of doing something but 
the other thing that I was going to say that I, I took from there, from, from what you were saying, and, and I think, yeah, it can be a total bummer when you realize like, oh, I've maybe lost that common ground that I had with this person that I really enjoyed. Um, it, it can take a little bit of time to find new community, but I think that having online spaces that are safe mm. that are um you know where everyone is on board with what you're saying so I know that you have Facebook groups we have Facebook groups um I just want to shout out Anti-Diet Riot Club yes. who have their new online community they have like an online sharing space and like all kinds of stuff to to you know help you find people that can um, support you and guide you through this because community and you know sharing your lived experience I think is like immeasurably valuable and you know at the same time like you know if you have that if you feel really grounded in what you're doing then you can go back to those people in your life and be like you know here's what I'm doing now I'd really appreciate it if we didn't base all our conversations around weight and and diet talk and if you know if 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 there is something there to that friendship they will respect that and you will mm. build something new and it will be you know based on honesty rather than you pretending to be interested in diets just to hold on to this friendship so yeah yeah and we had an episode and I always refer back to it because I love Michelle Elman and her work around boundaries and she really was kind of like you know you can just say like we're not going to talk about that and you know we spoke about the beginning of the episode the idea of like not having to change everyone you meet and you know not feeling like it's you know your your individual responsibility to to get everyone else in the same headspace that you're in um but you can still have these relationships and these friendships by just put setting boundaries in place where you say like I'd really appreciate if we didn't talk about xyz but I'd love to talk about other things with you and I'm sure you have other people you can talk about this with so if if we could just do that that would be great and I think um you know this is maybe a slightly different issue of the uh, the idea that you know any you know and it it does vary and, and it's very an individual decision but the idea that you know not being able to be in friendships with people who may think slightly differently about certain issues um, and that actually you don't necessarily have to completely cut everyone out of your life. You can, with appropriate boundaries and discussion and communication, be able to have, you know, be able to to maintain these, these friendships and relationships. Absolutely, yeah. So let's um, get into... one another way you kind of talked about and you talk about breaking up with diet culture um (laughs) and I've heard the analogy before that like diet culture is like getting out of an abusive relationship and you kind of like will try and leave a certain amount of times before you finally are ready to say goodbye and I think it's important to say that to people listening and even then you might still have a one-night stand (laughs) yes yes you're like, oh, I'll just go and give my ex their stuff back. And then you're like suddenly in bed with them again. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, you talk about, and I think this is, this applies to kind of, we spoke about the idea of maybe like before and after photos, but social media detox, which I think seems maybe an obvious place to start. But I also think 
perhaps we can discuss some of the <gasps> diet culture red flags yeah. we find on social media. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, it is, like, it's, I always kind of, I'm a bit reticent to, to say that because it's such, like, common advice now to clean up your social media feed. But my experience has been with clients is that even though they know, they know that person that is bad for them, they're still following them. <laughs> there's it's still it's still happening so what I would just say is be really really honest with yourself as you're scrolling through your social media feed and like if it's helpful imagine I'm in the room with you being like why are you following that person what mm. are they what value are they adding why are they sh- like showing off their body like is that helpful for you right now does are you comparing yourself Um, if so, just like get rid of them. And the thing is, you can always add these people back in when you feel a bit more, you know, centered and assured. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But just kind of temporarily pause all of that stuff and fill your feed with people who are promoting intuitive eating, body liberation, um, and, you know, like gentle movement, diversify the bodies that you're following as well. But in terms of specific red flags, uh, there, there are so many, but, you know, I think starting with food, if people are promoting the, the idea of balance, but their idea of balance is like a salad followed by a pint of Ben and Jerry's, then maybe that's not... <laughs> a true semblance of of balance Mm. um or if they don't show any beige food or um you know if if every meal looks perfect and is you know very quote always looking very healthy and and that aspect yeah or if they're if there's if they're only sharing recipes that are like the healthy version of your favorite food Mm. um those are all kind of things that I would be a bit worried about but also like if that unless that person is a chef or like a recipe developer or food stylist or something like that like why are they sharing loads of pictures of their food that would be like my question like I don't what why is what you're eating relevant to me? Mm. Unless you've been to like this incredible restaurant that you want to share or you've had this like, you know, hangover fry up. <laughs> like what like what is the point in, in what you're sharing really? Yeah, why do why does what you eat in a day bear relation to what I need to eat in a day? Exactly. Exactly. If it's for recipe inspiration, you know, that's one thing, but you know, again, is that coming from a recipe developer or is that coming from a clean eating blogger? I would even say if nutritionists and dietitians are sharing recipes, I'd be a bit sketched out by that. So mm. just, yeah, like kind of think about where where that is coming from and what mm. the intention behind that is. Um, both the intention that the person sharing it has, but also your intention in engaging with it as well. It's like, am I looking for a bit of inspiration in a sense, or am I looking to be told how to eat? Exactly, exactly that. And then I think in terms of red flags around body image, you know, is this person kind of promoting a eat like me, look like me philosophy? Um, Are they, you you know, do they have, a body that is very close to the sort of cultural ideal of thinness, whiteness, beauty, 
you know, what what kind of body standard are they presenting to the world? Mm. Um, are they, you know, ha- like highly editing their pictures? Are, and they don't necessarily even have to be showing off their body in the like fitspo sense of wearing like a crop top and um, or like a sports bra and t- t- like tight leggings. It could be like fashion bloggers or um, models who are you know they're wearing really great clothes but at the same time it's causing you that like comparison you know you're you're still seeing idealized images of bodies basically especially if they're highly edited and I think a lot of this stuff is is like what what reaction are you having off of what they're posting because like people you know people do exist in smaller bodies yeah they do and we need and but like in this moment of going through this process, if there's certain things that you're finding like you're feeling, um, you know, you're noticing you, yourself have a reaction or you yeah. start to get an old thought patterns, then they might not. It's just not something you might need in your world right now. Yeah. And it's not to say that they can't, you know, certain things, you know, will be reintroduced when you're ready. Absolutely. But, you know, I've had plenty of people say to me, you know. I had to take a break from you, especially when I was more in my like dieting days. Like I had to take yeah. a break from you, and that's actually really nice to come back and see that you're maybe in a different headspace now. But I needed to do that for myself, and I wholly respect that. And I do not take it personally because yeah. it's every person's individual journey, and it's not. You know, I'm not offended if if that's what you need to do. And I think a lot of other people feel the same way. So don't. Yeah, sure. You know, I think some people are like, oh, I I don't want to unfollow this person. It's rude, and you're like. You do you. It's not rude. But also you can just mute them for a little while. Yes. If you don't want to unfollow or like if you can't unfollow because it's like political reasons. Political. It's your <laughs> cousin or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, you you, you, you do what do what you have to do to look after yourself and just check in with yourself periodically. But yeah, absolutely. It's the it's how viewing that content makes you feel and you have to be honest with it. And I think we we focus a lot on food. We focus a lot on like fitspo, but I actually find that it can be stuff mm, that you're, closer you don't to home. expect. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. It, can, it can be things that you think are like safe in adverted commas, but actually that's bringing up a lot of stuff for you. So unfollow or mute or just take a break from social media for a little while. That's another great way. And or, you know, research seems to suggest that if we are following like um, quotes about self-compassion and body diverse accounts and intuitive eating accounts and our feeds are kind of interspersed with this stuff that that can buffer a lot of the negative effects Mm. of just viewing um, fitspo or like clean eating food porn type stuff so um, yeah that's another way that you could approach it of the um this past year has been bringing up a, a lot more stuff of people around food and body. And, and I think because our bodies may have changed as a result of being at home more. Yeah. Um, and so this January we're like, okay, let's do something about yeah. it, which yeah. is, um, you know, coming, maybe coming, I don't want to say it's problematic in and of itself, but um, that's because that's what we've learned through diet culture. Yes, we need to do exactly. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think through this last year and all the ups and downs, and we're still in the midst of it, that there's this idea that emotional eating is really bad. 
you know, we can't trust our bodies. Um, comfort food is wrong. And yeah. that, you know, there's good foods and bad foods. And we write clean slate, let's only eat the quote good foods. So yeah. there's a few things to unpack there. I wonder yes. if we could just finish on a, you know, is emotional eating the worst thing in the world? And, you know, how can I start to look at food with a bit more kindness? So I'm going to share something that Jess Sprengel shared on my podcast about emotional eating. Because like I said, each chapter in the book has a corresponding podcast. So I spoke to Jess and she, she said, the thing that she said to me that really like struck me, that I hadn't even thought of until now is all eating is emotional eating. Mm. All, always, all the time. And this, the penny really dropped for me recently when um, we started feeding my baby solids and I gave him a banana and he just made the like sweetest, purest, most wholesome, happy grunting sound I've ever heard in my life. It was just this like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> when he was eating the banana, he was like euphoric and it, it just hammered home to me. I mean, something that I already knew, but it really illustrated it was this idea that food brings comfort, food brings joy, food brings pleasure, food, you know, even from being tiny, tiny babies, if you think about it, Mm. like all food is, all, all eating is comfort eating, right? Because hunger is uncomfortable Mm. when we so when we eat we are moving towards comfort we're moving away from discomfort towards comfort and the problem is that diet culture pathologizes that diet culture tells us that that's wrong that that's a problem um, that that's something that needs to be fixed so through the lens of of intuitive eating when we look at emotional eating in inverted commas we're asking ourselves okay you know if that if if eating is connected to an uncomfortable or a difficult feeling then emotional eating is perhaps a clue that we need to look at our self-care that we need to um you know double down on you know that going back to that toolkit and and sort of seeing okay what's in our emotional coping toolkit that we need to investigate and you know um sit with a bit more so that that's the way that we look at it through intuitive eating but the the emotional eating chapter in in my book I've actually brought it up a little bit compared to just eat it but in how to just eat it I think about almost these like layers that we have to go through before we can even touch on the concept of emotional eating because so much of what we label in our judgy brains as emotional eating is actually because we're not eating in response to hunger, we're not giving ourselves unconditional permission to eat, mm-hmm. and we're also shit talking ourselves when we do eat, you know, bad foods in inverted commas. So I mean, we could spend a whole podcast just unpacking each of those like layers that you have to work through. But 
we don't have time. It is all in my book, so <laughs> check out the book. But yeah, you 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 people when when we start, um, so many of my clients when they come to me are like, I need to stop emotional eating, and actually, what we find is by going through the process of intuitive eating, that so-called emotional eating or comfort eating or stress eating kind of naturally takes care of itself when some of the other principles click into place. Mm. And also it's like a case of, is it, I need to stop emotional eating. And it's like, ah, you need more tools in your kit that we've spoken about so much today. Um, And that when you have those tools, you're less solely reliant on that one soothing technique, you know, that, that there's other ways to, to, and and it's the same with exercise, you know, that like, is it, is it just food and exercise you're turning to? And, and if that's the case, then we probably, we do need more things. We do need more stuff. And, and, and also here's the, the thing that I talk about in my books. Um, and, and something I say to clients a lot is if you imagine our emotional coping toolkit and the main thing that we have in there, or maybe the only thing that we have in there is food. Mm. If we go along and we take that out, then there might be nothing else or very little yeah. left to work with. And so what, when we keep food in there as an emotional coping tool and we add some other things then we've got more choice more things that we can we can pick from but food is also still in there it's okay if we need to go and cry into a piece of cake like that's human and normal mm. and that's totally that that's totally fine I do it I'm sure you yeah. do it if you yesterday had a <laughs> yeah yesterday I just you know we went I was having a, I was having a bad day Decided to go for a walk. We walked past a local business that basically like a restaurant that turned themselves into like a deli. Had mm. these cakes that looked incredible. And I was like, oh, like, you know, this would be so lovely. And it wasn't necessarily a, this cake will solve all my problems. But this cake will, I don't know, like just something really delicious will cheer me up. <laughs> and I, I see that as part of my emotional eating. Um, and I didn't think twice. I don't really think twice about about it at this point because like you say once you start to get more tools in place um it becomes a tool but you don't you know you don't over analyze it yeah well it also sounds like you've worked a lot on removing the judgment Mm. around emotional eating and I think that's half the battle is like because if you if you eat in response to you know feeling sad or upset about something what's actually worse in that situation is when you beat yourself up about it rather than Mm. just being like, okay, I, you know, that cake really made me feel kind of warm and comforted and grounded. Now I'm going to get on and and do the things that I can do to solve whatever my problem was. Absolutely. Rather than, oh my God, that was so bad. I'm, you know, just the worst person for eating that cake. Do you have um, do you have one final takeaway that for those looking to start to trust themselves more this January and start to look at food and their relationship with food from a different and you know become more intuitive besides um, reading your books? <laughs> do you have do you have a an, a, an, a little takeaway for people? I think yeah. I think notice all, noticing all the ways that diet culture undermines the trust that we have in our bodies, like the messages that we receive, you know, you're not hungry, you're just thirsty, um, you know, here are all these like products that so, you know, supposedly suppress your appetite, that all 
takes you away from um, tuning in and, and trusting your instinct. And I know it can be really scary to relinquish that control and, um, you know, like start letting go of the rules. But the only way to build trust back in your body, or I suppose another way of saying it is that you're not just, let me say that again, sorry. Jake, cut that bit out, <laughs> we're starting again. Uh, um, so we often think that um, we have to gain trust in our bodies. What we don't think about is that our bodies need to learn to trust us. And that is a bit of, of a process and it can take time. And the way that our bodies learn to trust that we will always nourish it with regular, satisfying, adequate food is by doing the thing. You have to just do it. That's the only Mm. way your body will come to accept that you're not going to keep depriving it. You're not going to keep restricting it. And that can take a little bit of time. um, But that just remembering that trust is a two-way street, okay? It's not just you learning to trust your body. It's your body learning to trust you as well. Brilliant thing to to leave with people. Um, And because this is the Train Happy podcast and we love to talk about train happy moments, I want to know if you have had a recent train happy moment um, of, you know, movement or listening to a body. I wonder what that would be. Yeah. So I had a baby and, you know, took a long break from movement because my body just felt wrecked after having a baby. Um, and one thing that I, okay, two, two little things, if that's okay. Um, so I, I've started doing Pilates again and the Pilates instructor that I work with is fantastic. And she like does a lot of really mindful movement. So like, she'll make me focus on things that you would just never think to focus on like stretching at my toes and lifting my toes and then like placing them down one at a time on the ground and like little movements with my hand and my neck so it's really like just these small subtle movements that you would never think about that you make like make a huge difference to how you feel in your body so that's one and then just again thinking about my baby and the way that he moves in his body and just seeing him like kick his little legs and like reach for things and roll over and play and it's just he has so much fun with it and I think that's just such a beautiful reminder of how we're meant to to connect with movement and connect with our bodies and it's to bring joy it's to bring pleasure it's to have fun as well as like move around and stuff like that. But you know, you know what I mean? Mm, he just, he's yeah. having like the best time with it. And um, that has been really incredible to see. I think babies are such a wonderful reminder of kind of yeah. our just innocence of how, you know, us yeah. in our kind of natural state, state I suppose. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so many lessons to learn. So many lessons to learn. So Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so Aww. much for your time. Um, where can people get, how to just eat it where can they find the podcast um and and you on socials yeah so how to just eat it should be anywhere that you can buy books it should be available 
around the world. If you can't find it um, in your local bookshop, then a, you can ask them to order it in. Or if you're not um, in the UK, a good place to get it is Book Depository. Um, they do free worldwide shipping. So check that out. And then the podcast is Don't Salt My Game. So if you look in the feed, there will be a series I think it's series seven all around um, how to just eat it. So there's a podcast episode that accompanies every chapter in the book. And I'm on social media at Laura Thomas PhD or for my account around feeding kids and um, helping kids have a positive relationship with food. That's bub.appetite. And my clinic, London Centre for Intuitive Eating, is Intuitive Eating LDN. So that's, I mean, we'll link it all I, in I the show notes. I can't hide on the internet. I'm everywhere. <laughs> you are. We'll, we'll link it all for everyone to find you, to find your work. Thank you so much for coming on board again. Um, well, thank you for thinking of me, Tally. I really appreciate it. Always, always. Like we said, you've planted many seeds and it always comes <laughs> back around. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening, as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the train happy trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too. And it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.